critical stage, financial distress, and five, revulsion. Displacement, the birth of a boom. Displacement is generally an exogenous shock that triggers the creation of profit opportunities in some sectors, while closing down profit availability in other sectors. As long as the opportunities created are greater than those that get shut down, investment and production will pick up to exploit these new opportunities. Investment in both financial and physical assets is likely to occur. Effectively, we are witnessing the birth of a boom. As Mill puts it, a new confidence begins to germinate early in this period, but its growth is slow. Credit creation, the nurturing of a bubble. Just as fire can't grow without oxygen, so a boom needs credit to feed on. Minsky argued that monetary expansion and credit creation are largely endogenous to the system. That is to say, not only can money be created by existing banks, but also by the formation of new banks, the development of new credit instruments, and the expansion of personal credit outside the banking system. Mill noted that during this phase, the rate of interest is almost uniformly low. Credit continues to grow more robust, enterprise to increase, and profits to enlarge. Euphoria. Everyone starts to buy into the new era. Prices are seen as only capable of always going up. Traditional valuation standards are abandoned, and new measures are introduced to justify the current price. A wave of over-optimism and overconfidence is unleashed, leading people to overestimate the gains, underestimate the risks, and generally think they can control the situation. The new era dominates discussions, and Sir John Templeton's foremost dangerous words in investing, this time is different, reverberate around the market. As Mill wrote, there is a morbid excess of belief Healthy confidence has degenerated into the disease of the too facile faith. The crowd of investors do not, in their excited mood, think of the pertinent questions, whether their capital will become quickly productive, and whether their commitment is out of proportion to their means. Unfortunately, however, in the absence of adequate foresight and self-control, the tendency is for speculation to attain its most rapid growth, exactly when its growth is most dangerous. Critical Stage, Financial Distress This leads to the critical stage that is often characterized by insiders cashing out, and is rapidly followed by financial distress, in which the excess leverage that has been built up during the boom becomes a major problem. Fraud also often emerges during this stage of the bubble's life. Mill was aware of the dangers that the use of the leverage posed and how it could easily result in asset fire sales. The trader who employs, in addition to his own means, a proportion of borrowed capital, has found in the moment of crisis the conjuring power of his name utterly vanished and has been compelled to provide for inexorably maturing obligations by the forced sales of goods or produce at such prices as would tempt forth reluctant capital. Final Stage Revulsion The final stage of a bubble's life cycle is revulsion. 
Investors are so scarred by the events in which they participate that they can no longer bring themselves to participate in the market at all. This results in bargain basement asset prices. Mill opined, As a rule, panics do not destroy capital. They merely reveal the extent to which it has been previously destroyed by its betrayal in hopelessly unproductive works. The failure of great banks and mercantile firms are the symptoms incident to the disease, not the disease itself. Mill was also aware of the prolonged nature of a recovery in the wake of a bubble. He wrote, Economy, enforced on great numbers of people by losses from failures and from depreciated investments, restricts their purchasing power. Profits are kept down to the stunted proportions of demand. Time alone can steady the shattered nerves and form a healthy cicatrice over wounds so deep. Pretty much every bubble in history can be mapped against this framework. It should help to guide us in our thinking and analysis when it comes to avoiding bubbles. Your Edge Over the Pros Believe it or not, you actually have one huge edge over the professionals when trying to overcome this pitfall. You don't have to be a slave to an arbitrary benchmark. As Keynes observed, it is the long-term investor, he who most promotes the public interest, who will in practice come in for most criticism, wherever investment funds are managed by committees or boards or banks. For it is in the essence of his behavior that he should be eccentric, unconventional, and rash in the eyes of average opinion. If he is successful, that will only confirm the general belief in his rashness, and if in the short run he is unsuccessful, which is very likely, he will not receive much mercy. According to classical finance, bubbles should be prevented by the presence of arbitrageurs. These guys sit around waiting for opportunities to exploit the herd and drive prices back towards some form of equilibrium. Sadly, not many professional investors actually do this. Those few who try to stand against bubbles must avoid the use of leverage. As Mill noted previously, those who try to fulfill this role while using leverage often find themselves coming to a sticky end. Witness the end of LTCM in 1998. As Keynes said, the market may remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Yet another group of professionals actually chooses to become bubble riders. They amplify rather than reduce the bubble, confident in their abilities to exit at the top or very close to it. Horsbank did exactly this during the South Sea Bubble of 1720, and some hedge funds played a similar role during the dot-com mania. However, the vast majority of professional investors simply don't try to arbitrage against bubbles because of self-serving bias and myopia. They are benchmarked against an index and fear underperforming that index above all else. This is also known as career risk. Thus, they don't have the appetite to stand against bubbles. This is amplified by the fact that most fund management organizations are paid on the basis of assets under management. So the easiest way of not getting fired is to deliver a performance close to the benchmark, also known as business risk. These two elements of self-serving bias collude 
to prevent many managers from doing the right thing. Of course, thankfully, there are exceptions. Jean-Marie Evelard of First Eagle has said, I would rather lose half my clients than half my clients' money. Similarly, Jeremy Grantham's refusal to participate in the dot-com bubble cost him about two-thirds of his asset allocation book. Such a willingness to take on career and business risk is, sadly, a very rare commodity indeed. However, as an individual investor, you don't have to worry about career or business risk. This is your greatest advantage over the professionals. Investors should remember bubbles are a byproduct of human behavior, and human behavior is all too predictable. The details of each bubble are subtly different, but the general patterns remain eerily similar. As such, bubbles and their bursts are clearly not black swans. Of course, the timing of the eventual bursting of the bubble remains as uncertain as ever, but the patterns of the events themselves are all too predictable. As Jean-Marie Evelard observed, sometimes what matters is not so much how low the odds are that circumstances would turn negative. What matters more is what the consequences would be if that happens. In other words, sometimes the potentially long-term negative outcomes are so severe that investors simply can't afford to ignore them, even in the short term. Chapter 12. Right for the Wrong Reason, or Wrong for the Right Reason. Writing Away Your Mistakes and Biases. In the last chapter, we saw that bubbles follow very similar paths, although the details vary over time. This raises the very important question, why don't we learn from our mistakes? The historic financial landscape is peppered with examples of bubbles from the South Sea bubble of the 1700s to the Japanese bubble in the late 1980s, the dot-com bubble at the turn of this century, and, of course, the current credit housing bubble. You might have thought that we humans might have learnt from history. However, yet another pitfall of the X system is an unwillingness to recognize our mistakes and errors as such. Instead, we gloss over them. John Kenneth Galbraith, an unusually insightful economist, said the markets are characterized by extreme brevity of the financial memory. In consequence, financial disaster is quickly forgotten. In further consequence, when the same or closely similar circumstances occur again, sometimes in a few years, they are hailed by a new, often youthful, and always supremely self-confident generation as a brilliantly innovative discovery in the financial and larger economic world. There can be few fields of human endeavor in which history counts for so little as in the world of finance. My favorite quotation on the lack of historical appreciation in finance comes from Jeremy Grantham, the chief strategist at GMO. We met him in Chapter 2 and again in Chapter 11, who, when asked, Do you think we will learn anything from this turmoil? responded, we will learn an enormous amount in the very short term, quite a bit in the medium term, and absolutely nothing in the long term. That would be the historical precedent. 
Of course, in order to learn from a mistake, we need to understand that it is a mistake. This may sound obvious, but we have to overcome at least two psychological biases, self-attribution bias and hindsight bias. It's not my fault. It's just bad luck. Self-attribution bias is our habit of attributing good outcomes to our skill as investors, while blaming bad outcomes on something or somebody else. Sports events are a great example of this kind of thinking. For instance, psychologists looked at the explanations offered in the sports pages to study the presence of attribution bias among athletes. In evaluating an athlete or coach's opinion of his performance, they asked themselves if the performance was due to an internal factor, that is, something relative to the team's abilities, or an external factor, such as a bad referee. Unsurprisingly, self-attribution was present. Seventy-five percent of the time following a win, an internal attribution was made, the result of skill, whereas only fifty-five percent of the time following a loss was the internal attribution made. The bias was even more evident when the explanations were further categorized as coming from either a player, coach, or a sports writer. Players and coaches attributed their success to an internal factor more than 80% of the time. However, internal factors were blamed only 53% of the time following losses. The same thing happens when it comes to investing. It is all too easy for investors to dismiss poor results as examples of bad luck. On some occasions, this may well be the case, but on others, bad analysis may be the root cause. In a recent speech, David Einhorn of Greenlight Capital pointed out, When something goes wrong, I like to think about the bad decisions and learn from them, so that hopefully I don't repeat the same mistake. He goes on to provide an example of a mistake he once made. In 2005, he recommended buying MDC Holdings, a home builder, at $67 per share. In the following four years, MDC dropped about 40%. As Einhord stated, the loss was not bad luck. It was bad analysis. Simply put, he failed to understand the importance of the big picture, in this case, the U.S. housing and credit bubble. Sadly, few of us are as introspective as Einhorn. So to combat the pervasive problem of self-attribution, we really need to keep a written record of the decisions we take and the reasons behind those decisions. An investment diary, if you will. Keeping an investment diary may sound daft, but George Soros did exactly that. In his Alchemy of Finance, he writes, I kept a diary in which I recorded the thoughts that went into my investment decisions on a real-time basis. The experiment was a soaring success in financial terms. My fund never did better. It also produced a surprising result. I came out of the experiment with quite different expectations about the future. Having kept such a diary, we need to map the outcomes of decisions and the reasons behind those decisions into a quadrant diagram. It would look something like this. There would be two columns, good outcome and bad outcome. On the left-hand side, you would have two options, right reasoning and wrong reasoning. So under right reasoning and a good outcome, it could be because of skill, perhaps. 
With right reasoning but a bad outcome, it could be bad luck. With wrong reasoning and a good outcome, it could be good luck. And with wrong reasoning and a bad outcome, they would be a mistake. That is, was I right for the right reason? Meaning, I can claim some skill, it could still be luck, but at least I can claim skill. Or, was I right for some spurious reason? In which case, I will keep the result because it makes the portfolio look good. But I shouldn't fool myself into thinking that I really knew what I was doing. Was I wrong for the wrong reason? That is, I made a mistake and I need to learn from it. Or was I wrong for the right reason? After all, bad luck does occur. And price volatility dwarfs fundamental volatility in our world. Only by cross-referencing our decisions and the reasons for those decisions with the outcomes can we help to understand when we are lucky and when we have used genuine skill, and more importantly, where we are making persistent recurrent mistakes. Don't be a Monday morning quarterback. One of the reasons I suggest that people keep a written record of their decisions and the reasons behind their decisions is that if they don't, they run the risk of suffering from the second bias that prevents us from learning from our investment mistakes. Hindsight bias. This simply refers to the idea that once we know the outcome, we tend to think we knew it all the time. In finance, we seem to enjoy an Orwellian rewriting of history after each bubble. In the wake of each bubble, a deluge of text appears, telling us what went wrong and why, usually penned by those who hadn't spotted the problem in the first place. This is a form of the exposed rationalization that makes events seem much more predictable than they were beforehand. Psychologists have shown that this tendency crops up with alarming regularity. For instance, in one experiment, students were given descriptions of the British occupation of India and problems of the Gurkhas of Nepal. The information provided went along the following lines. In 1814, Hastings, the governor-general, decided that he had to deal with the Gurkhas once and for all. The campaign was far from glorious, and the troops suffered in the extreme conditions. The Gurkhas were skilled at guerrilla-style warfare, and as they were few in number, there was little chance for full-scale engagements. The British learned caution only after several defeats. Having read a much longer version of the previous, the students were told to assign probabilities to each of the four following outcomes. 1. British victory. 2. Gurkha victory, three, military stalemate without a peace settlement, and four, military stalemate with a peace settlement. Another group of students read the same thing, but this group was provided with the true outcome. The only snag was that each of four outcomes was labeled the true outcome. So some students were told outcome one was really the result, and others were told outcome two was the result, and so on. Strangely enough, when people were told the supposed true outcome, they upped the probability they attached to that outcome. In fact, they nearly doubled the probability they placed on the outcome compared to the group who weren't given any information on the outcomes. That is to say, people weren't capable of ignoring the ex post outcome in their decision-making. This study demonstrates why a real-time investment diary 
can be a very real benefit to investors because it helps to hold us true to our thoughts at the actual point in time, rather than our reassessed version of events after we know the outcomes. An investment diary is a simple but very effective method of learning from mistakes and should form a central part of your approach to investment. Chapter 13. The Perils of ADHD Investing Never Underestimate the Value of Doing Nothing We have learned in this audiobook that one of the barriers that prevents a lot of investors from acting against bubbles is myopia, an overt focus on the short term. However, this tendency to think short-term isn't unique to bubbles. We see it all the time. Investors today appear to have chronic attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, known as ADHD, when it comes to their portfolio. If you were to look at a table of the average holding period for a stock on the New York Stock Exchange from the years 1920 to the present, you would see that today the average holding period is around six months. In the 1950s and 1960s, investors used to hold stocks for seven or eight years. Interestingly, this was before the rise of the institutional investment as we know it today. Of course, if you hold a stock for just six months, you don't care at all about the long term. You simply care about the next couple of quarterly earnings figures. This focus on the short term is hard to reconcile with any fundamental view of investing. We can examine the drivers of equity returns to see what we need to understand in order to invest. At a one-year time horizon, the vast majority of your total return comes from changes in valuation, which are effectively random fluctuations in price. However, at a five-year time horizon, 80% of your total return is generated by the price you pay for the investment, plus the growth in the underlying cash flow. These are the aspects of investment that fundamental investors should understand, and they clearly only matter in the long term. Sadly, as Keynes appositely observed, human nature desires quick results. There is a peculiar zest in making money quickly. Compared with their predecessors, modern investors concentrate too much on annual, quarterly, and even monthly valuations of what they hold, and on capital appreciation. Regrettably, the quarters and months that Keynes alluded to have become days and minutes for some investors today. What can we learn from goalkeepers? Not only do we desire quick results, but we love to be seen as doing something, as opposed to doing nothing. We have a distinct bias towards action. Soccer goalkeepers provide us with a great example of this unfortunate tendency. For the record, despite the stereotypical image of the British being obsessed with soccer, I know very little about the game. Since I grew up playing rugby all winter and cricket all summer, our so-called national game leaves me cold. Nevertheless, we can learn from the experience of the goalkeepers. Although not normally the stars of the team, it transpires that when it comes to penalty kicks, top goalkeepers are action men. A recent study revealed some fascinating patterns when it comes to trying to save penalties. In soccer, when a penalty is awarded, the ball is placed 11 meters from the goal, and it is a simple contest between the goalkeeper and the kicker. 
the goalkeeper may not move from his line until the kick has occurred. Given that in the average soccer match 2.5 goals are scored, a penalty, which has an 80% chance of resulting in a goal, can dramatically influence the result of the game. So unlike in many psychological experiments, the stakes are significant. Our intrepid researchers examined some 311 penalty kicks from top leagues and championships worldwide. A panel of three independent judges was used to analyze the direction of the kick and the direction of movement by the goalkeeper. To avoid confusion, all directions, left or right, were relayed from the goalkeeper's perspective. Very roughly speaking, the kicks were equally distributed, with about one-third of the kicks aimed at the left, center, and right of the goal mouth. However, the goalkeepers displayed a distinct action bias. They dived either left or right, 94% of the time, hardly ever choosing to remain in the center of their goal. Yet they would have been much more successful if they had just stood in the center of the goal. According to the stats, when the goalkeeper stays in the center of the goal, he saves some 60% of the kicks aimed at the center, far higher than his saving rate when he dives, either left or right. However, goalkeepers stay in the center only 6% of the time. The goalkeepers were asked why they chose to dive rather than stand in the center. The defense offered was that at least they feel they are making an effort when they dive left or right, whereas standing in the center and watching a goal scored to the left or the right of you would feel much worse. Well, I don't know about you, but in my opinion nothing could be worse than losing, regardless of where you stand. Poor performance increases the desire to act. One final aspect of the bias to action is especially noteworthy. The urge to act tends to intensify after a loss, a period of poor performance in portfolio terms. Psychologists have asked people to consider something like the following scenario. Steenland and Stratoff are both coaches of soccer teams. Steenland is the coach of Blue Black, and Stratoff is the coach of EDO. Both coaches lost their prior game with a score of 4-0. This Sunday, Steenland decides to do something. He fields three new players. Stratoff decides not to change his team. This time, both teams lose with a score of 3-0. Who feels more regret, Coach Steenland or Coach Stratoff? Participants saw this statement in one of three forms. Some saw it as presented like I just did, framed in terms of a prior loss. Others were simply given the second half of the above, with no information on prior events. And the final group saw a version in which both coaches had won the previous week, but lost this week. If the teams had lost last week, then 90% of the respondents thought the coach making changes would feel more regret when the team lost this week. However, when the situation is presented as the teams losing both weeks, the coach not taking any action is thought to be feeling more regret by nearly 70% of respondents. The logic was that if only the coach had made some changes, he might not have lost for a second week in a row. 
This highlights the role that counterfactual thinking plays in our judgments. When dealing with losses, the urge to reach for an action bias is exceptionally high. Investors and Action Bias In order to introduce you to the evidence of an action bias among investors, I must first introduce the field of laboratory experiments in economics, specifically experimental asset markets. These are great contraptions for investigating how people behave in a financial market context without any complicating factors. In these experiments, markets are very simple, consisting of just one asset and cash. The asset is a share, which pays out a dividend once per period. The dividend paid depends upon the state of the world, and there are four possible states. Each state is equally weighted, that is, there is a 25% probability of each state occurring in any given period. Once you know the various payouts in each state of the world, it is trivial to calculate the expected value. Simply the payoffs multiplied by their probabilities then multiplied by the number of time periods remaining. The fundamental value of such an asset clearly decreases over time by the amount of the expected dividend paid out in each period. Now, you might think that this was a simple asset to trade. However, the evidence suggests otherwise. Here is a typical result from one of these asset markets. The asset starts off significantly undervalued and then rises massively above fair value before crashing back to fundamental value in the final periods. This is nothing more than a simple bubble forming and bursting. So, what has this got to do with action bias? Well, the example comes from a particularly interesting version of the experimental asset market. In this particular version of the game, once you had bought shares, you were prohibited from reselling them. This rules out the possibility of a greater fool theory driving the bubble. That is to say, because you can't resell the shares, there is no point in buying them above fair value in the hope you can sell them on to someone else for even more gain. In effect, participants were simply trading out of boredom. So it appears that investors have a bias to action as well. Waiting for the fat pitch. The antithesis of this action bias is, of course, patience. Patience is a weapon you can use to protect yourself from becoming an ADHD investor. It is required because the curse of the value investor is to be too early, both in terms of buying, known affectionately as premature accumulation, and in terms of selling. Unfortunately, in the short term, being early is indistinguishable from being wrong. Patience and discipline are much needed when the bottom-up search for value fails to uncover any investment of merit. If you can't find something to invest in, then you are best off doing nothing at all. Warren Buffett often talks of the importance of waiting for the fat pitch. He says, I call investing the greatest business in the world because you never have to swing. You stand at the plate. The pitcher throws you General Motors at 47, U.S. Steel at 39, and nobody calls a strike on you. There's no penalty except opportunity lost. All day you wait for the pitch you like. Then, when the fielders are asleep, you step up and hit it. 
However, most institutional investors behave like Babe Ruth at bat, with 50,000 fans and the club owner yelling, Swing, ya bum! and some guys trying to pitch him an intentional walk. They know if they don't take a swing at the next pitch, the guy will say, Turn in your uniform! In further developing this analogy, Buffett often refers to The Science of Hitting, a book written by Red Sox legend Ted Williams. In his book, Williams describes part of the secret to his phenomenal 344 career batting average. The theory behind Williams's extraordinary success was really quite simple, as many of the best ideas generally are. He split the strike zone into 77 cells, each of which made up the size of a baseball. And rather than swing at anything that made its way into the strike zone, he would swing only at balls within his best cells, the sweet spot, the ones he knew he could hit. If balls didn't enter one of his best cells, he simply waited for the next one, even if it meant striking out now and then. Just as Williams wouldn't swing at everything, investors should wait for the fat pitch. Thus, when the bottom-up search for opportunity fails, investors would be well advised to hold cash. As the sage of Omaha has said, holding cash is uncomfortable, but not as uncomfortable as doing something stupid. Seth Klarman picks up on the baseball metaphor in his brilliant book, Margin of Safety, and writes, Most institutional investors feel compelled to be fully invested at all times. They act as if an umpire were calling balls and strikes, mostly strikes, thereby forcing them to swing at almost every pitch and forego batting selectively for frequency. As such, he urges money managers to act almost like a couch potato. Ultimately, you only want to put things to work when you see very good opportunities, and you should have the patience to sit on it. As Klarman puts it, in a world in which most investors appear interested in figuring out how to make money every second and chase the idea du jour, there's also something validating about the message that it's okay to do nothing and wait for opportunities to present themselves or to pay off. That's lonely and contrary a lot of the time, but reminding yourself that that's what it takes is quite helpful. Part of the problem for investors is that they expect investing to be exciting, largely thanks to the bubble vision. However, as Paul Samuelson once opined, investing should be dull. It shouldn't be exciting. Investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. Although it is not easy to get rich in Las Vegas, at Churchill Downs, or at the local Merrill Lynch office. The legendary Bob Kirby once wrote of the coffee can portfolio, in which investors would have to put stocks and then not touch them, an idea he described as being passively active. As Kirby noted, I suspect the notion is not likely to be popular among investment managers, because, if widely adopted, it might radically change the structure of our industry and might substantially diminish the number of souls able to sustain opulent lifestyles through the money management profession. The coffee can portfolio concept harkens back to the Old West, when people put their valuable possessions in a coffee can and kept it under the mattress, 
That coffee can involve no transaction costs, administrative costs, or any other costs. The success of the program depended entirely on the wisdom and foresight used to select the objects to be placed in the coffee can to begin with. What kind of results would good money managers produce without all that activity? The answer lies in another question. Are we traders or are we real investors? Most good money managers are probably investors deep down inside. But quotroons and news services and computers that churn out daily investment results make them act like traders. They start with sound research that identifies attractive companies and promising industries on a longer-term horizon. Then, they trade those stocks two or three times a year based on month-to-month -month news developments and rumors of all shapes and sizes. Perhaps Blaise Pascal put it best when he said, All men's miseries derive not from being able to sit in a quiet room alone. Alternatively, as Winnie the Pooh pointed out, never underestimate the value of doing nothing. Chapter 14 Inside the Mind of a Lemming Becoming a Contrarian Investor As Warren Buffett observed, a pack of lemmings looks like a group of rugged individualists, compared with Wall Street when it gets a concept in its teeth. Of course, this is a highly defamatory statement with respect to lemmings. A willingness to subjugate one's own thoughts for those of a group is a sadly common behavioral affliction. Evidence casts serious doubt on people's ability to maintain their independence in the face of pressure. Experiments about this particular issue have been relatively commonplace since the 1950s. The basic setup is that you are one person in a group of eight or so. Unknown to you, the other participants all work for the experimenter. The room is set up so that each subject gives his or her answer to a particular question in turn, with the one true subject always going last. Under these conditions, psychologists have found that people conformed to the incorrect majority view approximately a third of the time. Three-quarters of the subjects conformed on at least one round, and one-third of the subjects conformed on more than half of the rounds. Interestingly, experiments have found that varying the group size has virtually no impact on the likelihood of someone conforming. As soon as there were at least three people giving an incorrect answer to a given question, then about one-third of subjects started to conform to the group judgment. Recent evidence from neuroscientists further increases our understanding of what is actually happening when people conform. In these experiments, researchers used a 3D image rotation task, in which two images are shown, and the people have to decide if the second image is a rotation of the first. When people performed this test alone, they did remarkably well, getting nearly 90% of the answers right. Unfortunately, a very different performance was witnessed when they could see the answers given by other members of the group. The rate of correct answers dropped to 59%, statistically no better than if they had flipped a coin to make the decision. Being neuroscientists, this game was being played while the subjects were undergoing a brain scan, an MRI. The researchers found that when people went with the group answer, they seemed to show a decrease in activity 
of the parts of the brain associated with logical thinking, the C-system. Simply put, they seemed to stop thinking. The Pain of Going Against the Crowd Not only did participants stop thinking, but when a subject conflicted with the group, a very specific part of the brain lit up. Our old friend, the amygdala, the brain's center of emotional processing and fear. In effect, nonconformity triggered fear in people. Going against the crowd makes people scared. Not only does going against the herd trigger fear, but it can cause pain as well. In this experiment, participants were told to play a computer game while having their brains scanned. Players thought they were playing in a three-way game with two other people, throwing a ball back and forth. In fact, the two other players were computer-controlled. After a period of three-way play, the two other players began to exclude the participant by throwing the ball back and forth between themselves. This social exclusion generated brain activity in the anterior cingulated cortex and the insula, both of which are also activated by real physical pain. Doing something different from the crowd is the investment equivalent of seeking out social pain. As a contrarian investor, you buy the stocks that everyone else is selling, and you sell the stocks that everyone else is buying. This is social pain. The psychological results suggest that following such a strategy is really like having your arm broken on a regular basis. Not fun. Fortunately, although painful, a strategy of being contrarian is integral to successful investing. As Sir John Templeton put it, it is impossible to produce superior performance unless you do something different from the majority. Or as Keynes pointed out, the central principle of investing is to go contrary to the general opinion on the grounds that if everyone agreed about its merits, the investment is inevitably too dear and therefore unattractive. Research shows that Templeton and Keynes were spot on. The stocks institutional fund managers are busy buying are outperformed by the stocks they are busy selling. For instance, if stocks are assigned to different portfolios based upon the persistence of institutional net trade, that is, the number of consecutive quarters for which institutions are net buyers or net sellers is recorded, and then the performance of the portfolios is tracked over a two-year time horizon, there is a 17% return difference. The stock that the institutions sold the most outperformed the market by around 11%, and the stocks they purchased the most underperformed by 6%. The Carrot of Conformity Obviously, the avoidance of pain stands out as a key factor in determining whether people choose to conform or not. However, if pain is the stick, then praise is the carrot. Given that so many professional investors make decisions in groups, this dynamic is an important one to understand. Psychologists have studied groups and asked them to rate members in terms of competency. It shouldn't come as a great surprise, given all you know about mental pitfalls such as confirmatory bias, that members of groups rate themselves higher and are rated higher by other members of the group when they bring information that is common or shared to the group. Those bringing divergent perspectives were effectively shunned. 
Indeed, groups show a disturbing habit of focusing upon common information. Researchers set up a clever experiment that demonstrates the essence of this problem. Participants were trying to choose between three candidates running for president of the student council. The information made available was designed so that candidate A was the best candidate. When reviewing the profiles and using all the information on the various candidates, 67% of the subjects individually selected candidate A. To see how the groups performed, the experiment was run twice more. On the first run, all the participants had all the information available to them, just as they did when making the selection alone. The groups actually performed better, with 83% selecting candidate A. However, on the next run, some of the information was made available to all the participants, but some was distributed among the group, so only one of the group knew about it. In fact, the relevant information on candidate A was widely dispersed among the group. When faced with this situation, the groups seemed to spend nearly all their time talking about the information they shared in common, rather than trying to uncover and aggregate the scattered information. Only 18% selected candidate A. The Dangers of Groupthink Groups have powerful self-reinforcing mechanisms at work. These can lead to group polarization, a tendency for members of the group to end up in a more extreme position than they started in because they have heard the views repeated frequently. At the extreme limit of group behavior is groupthink. This occurs when a group makes faulty decisions because group pressures lead to a deterioration of mental efficiency, reality testing, and moral judgment. The original work was conducted with reference to the Vietnam War and the Bay of Pigs fiasco. However, it rears its head again and again, whether it is in connection with the Challenger space shuttle disaster or the CIA intelligence failure over WMD of Saddam Hussein. Groupthink tends to have eight symptoms. 1. An illusion of invulnerability. This creates excessive optimism that encourages taking extreme risks. This is very similar to the over-optimism and overconfidence we discussed in chapters 4 and 5. 2. Collective rationalization. Members of the group discount warnings and do not reconsider their assumptions. They become blind in the same ways we saw in our discussion of conservatism in chapter 10. 3. Belief in inherent morality. Members believe in the rightness of their cause and therefore ignore the ethical and moral consequences of their decisions. 4. Stereotyped views of outgroups. Negative views of the enemy make effective responses to conflict seem unnecessary. Remember how those who wouldn't go along with the dot-com bubble were dismissed as simply not getting it? 5. Direct pressure on dissenters. Members are under pressure not to express arguments against any of the group's views. 6. Self-censorship. Doubts and deviations from the perceived group consensus are not expressed. 7. Illusion of unanimity. The majority view and judgments are assumed to be unanimous. And number 8. Mind guards are appointed. Members protect the group and the leader from information that is problematic 
are contrary to the group's cohesiveness, view, and or decisions. This is confirmatory bias, writ large. No less a sage than the mighty Robert Schiller has described his struggles with conformity and groupthink. In an article for the New York Times written in late 2008, he says, While I warned about the bubbles I believed were developing in the stock and housing markets, I did so very gently and felt vulnerable expressing such quirky views. Deviating too far from consensus leaves one feeling potentially ostracized from the group, with the risk that one may be terminated. Echoing Schiller's perspective, I have often pondered the possibility that academic finance is a prime example of groupthink at work. The obsession with the neat elegance of mathematical models and the love of the efficient markets hypothesis that dominates economics and finance departments strike me as the result of a classic example of groupthink. Those who challenge the orthodoxy are shunned, and young professors hoping for tenure are discouraged from expressing doubts and concerns. The journals and their editors act as mind guards for the community, suppressing views that might contradict the conventional wisdom. Alone in a Crowd of Sheep One final word of warning to all budding contrarians. We all like to think we are independent thinkers. Sadly, it is just another one of our failures to actually see our behavior as it really is, known as the introspection bias we discussed in the introduction. We see others' behavior as a demonstration of their underlying nature, while we see our own actions as driven by the circumstances we face, the fundamental attribution error. Both of these biases come together to convince us that we are independent thinkers, However, psychologists have explored the foundations of this belief that each of us thinks we act without influence from the crowd while we see others as being highly influenced by peer behavior. They asked 40 owners of iPods how influenced they were by the trendiness of the product relative to their peers. The scale went from 1, much less than average, to 9, much more than average, with 5 as average. So, the neutral answer was clearly five. However, the average response from the participants was a score of only 3.3, which indicates they thought they were all much less influenced by the trendiness of the iPod than the average. In another experiment, participants were asked to imagine that you are, or Carol is, shopping at a clothing store, and you are, or Carol is, deciding what pair of jeans to buy. They were then asked to indicate what it might mean to conform in this situation by choosing from two options. One option was focused on internal information. While you are, or Carol is, looking at different genes, you think, or she thinks, about whether you, or her, friends, have been wearing them. Alternatively, the other opinion emphasized observable behavior. You, or Carol, ends up buying a pair of jeans that many of your, or her, friends have been wearing lately. Multiple scenarios were presented in this fashion. The findings show that when the situations were phrased in terms of others, that is, Carol, then the options involving observable behavior were selected much more often than those based on internal information, 
65 versus 35 percent. However, when the situations were expressed in the first person, then the internal information option, less consistent with conformity, was selected far more often, 65 versus 35. It isn't easy being a contrarian. Make no mistake about it, even the very best investors have to overcome the demon of conformity. Overcoming this particular demon effectively requires three elements. The first is highlighted by the legendary hedge fund manager, Michael Steinhardt, who urged investors to have the courage to be different. He said, The hardest thing over the years has been having the courage to go against the dominant wisdom of the time, to have a view that is at variance with the present consensus, and bet that view. The second element is to be a critical thinker. As Joel Greenblatt has opined, you can't be a good value investor without being an independent thinker. You're seeing valuations that the market is not appreciating. But it's critical that you understand why the market isn't seeing the value. Finally, you must have the perseverance and grit to stick to your principles. As Ben Graham noted, if you believe that the value approach is inherently sound, then devote yourself to that principle. Stick to it, and don't be led astray by Wall Street's fashions, illusions, and its constant chase after the fast dollar. Let me emphasize that it does not take genius to be a successful value analyst. What it needs is, first, reasonably good intelligence, second, sound principles of operation, and third, and most important, firmness of character. Only by mastering all three of these elements will you be able to stand against the herd and reap the investment returns. Chapter 15 You Gotta Know When to Fold em. When It's Time to Sell an Investment Time for another game, if you dare. This time, let's toss a fair coin. If you lose, you must pay me $100. What is the minimum amount that you would need to win to make that bet attractive? Let's assume you can only deal in $1 units. The rational response is, therefore, an answer above $100. In fact, if you are risk-neutral, you should be willing to play for $100. However, when I ask this question, I generally get a much, much higher response than $100. In fact, the average response from the 600 fund managers who have taken my test is just over $200. That is, they need to win twice the amount they may lose before they will consider this a good bet. This result is typical for such a question. In general, people hate losses somewhere between two and two and a half times as much as they enjoy equivalent gains. This is a property known as loss aversion. In my sample of fund managers, we got the full range of responses from those who required $1,000 or more, over ten times as much as they stood to lose, to those who would have accepted just $50. I guess the former thought I was pathologically incapable of using a fair coin. The latter simply loved giving money away. In general, people's performance on the Cognitive Reflection Task, CRT, from the introduction of this audiobook is reasonably correlated with the degree of loss aversion they display. 
For instance, those who got only one of the CRT questions correct wanted an average of $300 to accept the bet. Those who got two questions right wanted $250. And those who managed to get all three CRT questions correct wanted $165. The more CRT questions you got right, the less likely you suffer extreme loss aversion. Loss aversion shows up in all sorts of areas, including professional golf. In a recent study, researchers examined some 1.6 million putts in PGA tournaments. The aim in each tournament is, obviously, for each golfer to minimize the total number of shots required to get around 72 holes. Thus, golfers should only care about their overall tournament score. However, the researchers found that golfers were subject to loss aversion. When golfers were shooting a birdie putt that would earn them a score one stroke under par, or shooting an eagle putt that would earn them a score two strokes under par, they were significantly less accurate than when they attempted otherwise similar putts for par or over par. On average, golfers make their birdie putts two to three percentage points less often than they make comparable par putts. For instance, when looking at all putts, less than 24 inches from the hole. Professional golfers make some 86% of the putts for par. But when the putts are for a birdie, only 82% of the putts are successful. This finding is consistent with loss aversion. Players invest more focus when putting for par to avoid suffering a loss. Indeed, in an interview, Tiger Woods said, Anytime you make big par putts, I think it's more important to make those than birdie putts. You don't ever want to drop a shot. The psychological difference between dropping a shot and making a birdie. I just think it's bigger to make a par putt. This bias doesn't come cheap. In professional golf, improving a score by one stroke pays handsomely. On average, the top 20 golfers earned nearly $4 million in tournament earnings in 2008. If each player had improved their score by one stroke in each of the tournaments in which they participated, assuming that other players' scores remained unchanged, the golfers would have earned an additional $1.1 million on average, a 22% increase in their winnings. We are not alone, or perhaps not even that evolved. Researchers have even explored loss aversion in capuchin monkeys. Capuchin monkeys split off from our evolutionary tree somewhere around 35 million years ago. So they are a pretty distant relative compared to, say, the chimpanzees, who separated from us a mere 6 million or so years ago. You may well be asking how on earth you test to see if capuchin monkeys are loss-averse. The answer is to play games with them. In fact, you play two games with them. In the first game, the capuchins were given one grape and, dependent on a coin flip, either retained the original grape or won a bonus grape. In the second game, the capuchins started out owning the bonus grape and, once again dependent on a coin flip, either kept the two grapes or lost one. These two games are in fact the same gamble, with identical odds, but one is framed as a potential win and the other as a potential loss. How did the capuchins react? 
They far preferred to take a gamble on the potential gain than the potential loss. Just in case you are wondering how you can tell which game Capuchin monkeys preferred, two experimenters played the games, and the monkeys returned predominantly to just one of the experimenters, effectively showing their preference. Such behavior is not what an economics textbook would predict. The laws of economics state that these two gambles, because they represent such small stakes, should be treated equally. The monkeys were clearly displaying loss aversion, just as we do. Myopia and Loss Aversion As if it wasn't bad enough that loss aversion may well be ingrained into our genetic code, we make it worse on ourselves by being myopic, which is an overt focus on the short term. The more you check your portfolio, the more likely you are to encounter a loss simply because of the volatile nature of stock prices. If only we could avoid the temptation to keep checking our portfolios. Researchers have found that people are willing to invest more when they see the performance of their holdings infrequently. Imagine you are taking part in a lottery. You are assigned one of three colors, red, white, or blue. Whether you win or not depends on someone picking your color from a hat that contains all three colors in equal number. The odds on your winning are obviously 33%. In each round, you will be given $100, and you must decide how much of this $100 you would like to wager. If you win, you will make two and a half times the amount you wager. If you lose, you lose the wager you placed. Two versions of this particular game were played. Each consisted of nine rounds. In the first version, players announced how much they would be prepared to wager round by round. In the second version, they announced how much they would wager each round, but rounds were grouped into threes. Both students and professional traders have played this game. When asked round by round, the students wagered an average of $51, but when asked to wager over groups of three rounds, they were prepared to bet $62. The traders wagered only $45 when asked round by round, but wanted to bet $75 per round when rounds were grouped into three games. The traders displayed much more myopic loss aversion than the students. So much for the idea that experience and incentives will wipe out behavioral biases. In his wonderful The Little Book That Beats the Market, Joel Greenblatt points out that loss aversion is one of the many behavioral biases that prevent us from investing along the lines of his magic formula. He writes, Imagine diligently watching those stocks each day as they do worse than the market average over the course of many months or even years. The magic formula portfolio fared poorly relative to the market average in five out of every twelve months tested. For full year periods, the magic formula portfolio failed to beat the market average once every four years. A lot of us value managers know exactly how this feels. It never ceases to amaze me that some fund managers actually have access to their portfolio's performance in real time. They can see exactly how much they are winning or losing, second by second. I can't imagine many more destructive practices than this. If I've done my homework and selected stocks that I think represent good value over the long term, 
Why on earth would I want to sit and watch their performance day by day, let alone second by second? I rarely examine the performance of my personal portfolio, as it is full of positions that should perform well in the long term, but certainly aren't guaranteed to do so without short-term losses. This perspective is shared by Seth Klarman. He stated that if the technology existed to permit real-time performance measurement of his portfolios, he wouldn't want it, since it would run completely contrary to his long-term focus. Yet investment managers can usually be found scurrying around to achieve superior daily or weekly performance, even though their proper goal ought to be to realize substantial gains farther down the road. This type of behavior makes little sense and can really dent your returns over the long term. Why You Can't Bring Yourself to Sell We have already seen what happens when investors suffer a loss. They go into terminal shutdown. However, there are subtle but important differences between behavior after loss and behavior that involves the risk of incurring a loss. Consider the following concurrent choices. A. A sure gain of $24,000 or B. A 25% chance of $100,000 and a 75% chance of gaining nothing and C. A sure loss of $75,000 or D. 